Back in Romans, Romans chapter 3 this morning. Be looking at the first 20 verses. In a few moments, we'll read the first nine. Letter to the Romans is considered the Bible's most comprehensive treatise on Christian doctrine. It is the foundation upon which many systematic theologies rest. It's theologically weighty, it's propositionally rich, it's doctrinally methodical. The left brain clarity of Romans appeals to people like us, Westerners, West with Western culture values, and particularly to academics. That's one way to come at the book of Romans. And as far as it goes, that's true. But I doubt that either St. Paul or the letter's recipients thought of this letter in that way. And frankly, it's not the way I think of Romans either. I think of Romans more like a symphony than a treatise. And Paul more like an inspired composer than a meticulous lawyer. I think of Romans as a symphony because Paul writes a theme into the letter. Sometimes it's a major theme like gospel and law. Sometimes it's a minor theme like the unity of the church. And then he weaves it back into the score in a richer, fuller way as the work progresses. When we come to this letter as if it were a systematic 21st century doctrinal treatise, or as many people see it, as a legal opinion, we'll probably come away with sound bites instead of a symphony. In today's text, we're going to see Paul, the composer, introducing a theme into the work which he already plans to bring back in the middle movement. He's going to bring it back in chapter 9, and then he'll bring it to a crescendo. The theme is Israel's place in God's plans. So the question, what about Israel? If all that you're saying is true, what about them? He introduces this here, he reintroduces it in chapter 9, and then he raises it to that crescendo in chapters 10 and 11. Now, there is a question, as is often the case in Romans, behind the theme that is the reason for its introduction. And the question, proudly put, is this. Did God fail? Did God fail? Since Israel did not, for the most part, acknowledge God's Messiah, does that mean that God who chose, that's just the pump that works the fire suppression system. So, don't, don't. <laughs> if it starts raining in here, you can all leave, but that's not gonna happen. Did God fail? Since Israel did not, for the most part, acknowledge God's Messiah, does that mean God who chose and prepared Israel for that very purpose fail? If God entered into a covenant with Abraham to bless the world through his descendants, yet most of them rejected the blessing, the Messiah, does that mean that God can't keep his promises? Paul returned to this theme in a much more comprehensive way in chapters 9 through 11, but he introduces it right here. It's like this light motif that plays through the rest of the symphony. Can God be trusted? That's the question behind this particular theme. And it's a question that many people, including God's saints, have asked. The psalmist cries out to God, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? When I'm in trouble, why can't I find you? In the terrible days of the exile, 
the biblical poet. Question God, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Even Jesus from the cross said, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? More recently, the great C.S. Lewis, reeling from the loss of his wife, wrote, What reason have we, except our own desperate wishes, to believe that God is by any standard we can conceive good? Doesn't all the prima facie, the initial evidence, suggest exactly the opposite? Can God be trusted? Paul's going to come back to that question again. Because it is so important. God's faithfulness is not really one of the themes of Romans. Not even a major theme. It's more like the frame on which all the themes in Romans are connected. If God is not faithful, that is, if he is not trustworthy, then all the other themes in Romans, justification by faith, law and gospel, the place of Israel among others, come crashing down. If God doesn't keep his word, if we can't trust him, then life is a spin of the roulette wheel, or maybe even the spin of the cylinder in a game of Russian roulette. Now, we'll come back to this idea before we're done today, but right now, let's read from our text. The text is Romans 3, 1 through 20, but I'm going to just read the first nine verses now. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may result, their condemnation's deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we, Jews, any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. So in chapter 2, Paul argued that Jews, like himself, he was a Jew, do not receive an automatic pass just because of their religion or their race. So in chapter 3, Paul asks the logical question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And for the next few verses, he carries on a debate with an imaginary debate partner. The questions are ones that Paul could have and may have actually raised in the years before he became a follower of Jesus. Most versions translate verse 1 with the word advantage. But that might be a little misleading because it implies comparison or even competition. The original is more like, what good is it being a Jew? Then... If Jews don't get a pass, what good is it being a Jew? See, God had made well-known promises to the Jews, but if they don't receive the promises, what good is it being a Jew? 
And further, if God can't or won't make good on his promises to his own people, and they are, after all, his people, how can anything he said be trusted? That's the troubling question behind this passage. Paul begins to answer his question, what good is it being a Jew, in verse 2. It's good in every way. And yet he only mentions one way, even though he, the next thing he says is first, but he never goes on to second. But remember, he'll play this theme again in chapter 9. And then he's going to list multiple benefits of being a Jew. But for now, he points out just one. One great good, they were entrusted with the very words or sayings or uh, oracles. It's the word that's used throughout Greek of an oracle. So the, the Gentiles had their oracles that said things, but the Jews had the very oracles of God. What a great benefit to have and know what God has said. And yet, knowing what he'd said, some Jews were nevertheless unfaithful. They made promises to God, but they didn't keep faith with God. So verse 3 is an extended play on words, which you don't see in most English translations. It could go this way. If some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's, un God's trustworthiness? Has Jewish faithlessness prevented God from being faithful? Paul blurts out an answer, not at all. Uh, in Greek, it's really strong. It's more like, no way. It's ridiculous. Not in a thousand years. When we get to chapter 9, he's going to explain why that's so. Here he doesn't say why the idea is unthinkable. He just says, even if everybody else is false, God will still be true. And to support that, he, he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. And because Psalm 51, verse 4 refers to God's judgment, he hops on that train and rides it for a little. He has his hypothetical debate partner argue, hey, if what you're saying is true, God's judgment against us, it isn't fair. If what you're saying is true, then it's not fair because he knows my unrighteousness brings out his righteousness more clearly. And if my falseness shines a light on his truthfulness, that's verse 7, what right does he have to condemn me? So Paul brings that up because this accusation has been made before. It's been made against him personally. His opponents have charged that this is where his teaching on grace leads. It leads to a failure to take responsibility and an I-can-do-whatever-I-want attitude. So in verse 8, in this impassioned aside, he's getting hot now. Paul asks, why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may result. He doesn't even bother to answer that. He just says their condemnation is deserved. Wherever else his teaching leads, it does not lead here to the smug self-satisfaction that blames other people for one's faults or says that evil doesn't matter. In verse 9, he brings up a question similar to the one he asked in verse 1. In verse 1, he asked, what good is it being a Jew? And he answered, it's good in every way. In verse 9, he asks, are we Jews any better? Or better off? And he answers, not at all. And this time, he's not asking if the Jews received blessings that the Gentiles did not. That was the question in verse 1, and he answered that affirmatively, absolutely. But this time he's asking, 
have our blessings as Jews given us an advantage over Gentiles? And the answer is, no way. In fact, same expression we saw earlier, not in a thousand years. And the reason is, verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And sin, from Paul's perspective, is a crushing, mind-numbing, relationship-shattering burden. All Jews and Gentiles alike under sin. Now, sin is so unpopular a term. It's so old-fashioned and so misunderstood that I hesitate even to use it. As soon as a preacher uses the word sin, a sizable percentage of his hearers zone out. I mean, who uses the word except for people who are all caught up in religiosity, the kind who love to judge everybody else? But Paul was not even remotely like such people. And he had something different in mind when he wrote and talked about sin. For Paul, sin was something like a disease. He believed the entire global population, whatever their religion or ethnicity, had been infected. The main symptom of sin is a blindness to God, an inability to hear him, an insensitivity to him. People think of sin, you know, it's drinking, it's sleeping around, it's swearing. Paul saw things like that as the result, not the substance of sin. Those things and a thousand others, injustice, racism, greed, hatred, power-mongering, gluttony, deceit, and many more result from a dislocation, a divorce from God. Imagine a dictator comes to power in some little country, and he, ha and he has the power to do this, and he immediately introduces a chemical agent into the drinking water that causes his subjects to fear freedom and forget their former and rightful ruler. Paul sees sin in a similar light. It changes the way people think. It enslaves them. It keeps them from their own freedom. And even though they're chronically dissatisfied, they can't see what to do about it because sin just clouds their minds. That's the situation in which the world finds itself. Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious people alike. The Jews with all their privileges have also been infected. The people who were supposed to deliver the cure carry the disease. Paul will go on, and we'll see this next week, to say what God did about that. But that's the claim that Paul makes. Everyone's under sin. And then he supports it with scripture. So verses 10 through 18 are a catena of Old Testament verses from Psalms, all from Psalms except for one, which is from Isaiah, proving that very point. He intentionally sandwiches all this proof of human bondage to sin between verses 11, there is no one who seeks God, and 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a literary device called bracketing. It's meant to show us the beginning and the end. It's all about this. The problem, the chronic problem that underlies all our failures and our faults is that God doesn't have his rightful place in our lives. Your problem is not your problem. 
troubled marriage, addiction, fear, anger. Your problem, like everyone else's, is a damaged relationship with God. The Old Testament verses Paul quotes tell us something. They tell us that this damaged relationship with God, this disease, this sin, has damaged every part of us. Notice how in verses 13 through 17, Paul chooses uh, verses from the Old Testament that list our body parts. Throats, tongues, lips, verse 13. Mouths, verse 14. Feet, verse 15. Eyes, verse 18. See, the disease has progressed. It's taken over the bodies that were given to us to know and love and serve God. There's something else in these scriptures that Paul quotes. They show that the disease has not only taken over all of a person, it's taken over all people. No one is righteous, not even one, verse 10. Again, no one understands. No one seeks God, verse 11. No one does good, not even one, verse 12. All have turned away, verse 12. The problem of sin, we'd like to think it's limited to bars and porn shops and Congress. But it has entered schools and churches and families. Every one of us has been hurt by it. All of us. You and me. And that includes religious people like the Jews who are under or in law, verse 19. It's hurt us all. Verse 20 is a summary statement. Meant especially for Jewish readers. So go back to chapter 2. Remember, Paul's telling Jewish readers, okay, you don't get a pass. You think because you're Jewish, you get a pass? No, it doesn't work that way. So verse 20 is a summary statement meant especially for Jewish readers. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous or justified in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Becoming conscious of sin is a good thing. It's the first step in getting help. The people who think they've got a handle on sin, you know, I got it under control, are wrong. Those who won't admit they've been affected won't get help. That's why Jesus said it's not the healthy but the sick who need a doctor. And what Paul has just said is that we're all sick. Some people just aren't conscious of it. Some people won't face it. As many of you know, I just had two stents inserted into my heart on Wednesday. Three weeks ago, I was sitting in my doctor's office and I bluntly told him, I don't want to go on meds to reduce my cholesterol. Don't like meds. And, and my cholesterol was only slightly elevated. So I don't want to go on meds. And I don't want to take a heart test. And then I said, but I don't want to be stupid either. So what would you advise me to do? He said, well, let's do an EKG. So they did the EKG, and something came back a little off, and he sent me to a cardiologist. The cardiologist sat with me for about 15 minutes, and when that was all done, he, he said, if I were a betting man, I'd bet there's nothing wrong with you. But because he wasn't a betting man, he sent me for a stress test. The, the t results came back a little wonky, and my doctor ordered a heart cath for me. At the Heart Institute up at Borges, or whatever they call it, I saw a different cardiologist 
the guy who did the procedure. And he, I told him what the other doctor said. He, he, bet, he said, I would bet there's nothing wrong with you. And he said, I would too. And then when I came back from the heart cath, I had two arteries that were 90% blocked. I could have refused to entertain the unwelcome news that there was something wrong with me. For crying out loud, I was hiking up and down ravines, ascending and descending hundreds of steps, climbing ladders just three weeks ago in 80-degree temperatures and overdressed because we thought it was going to be in the 60s. Um, two weeks ago, I was carrying my 40-pound grandson, like 400 pounds he felt, but we were, I ran with him for 100 yards. If that didn't prove there was nothing wrong with me, what would? I could have said, I eat well, I stay fit, I'm better than most people. But you know what? Whatever I said, it wouldn't have made any difference. My neighbor stopped yesterday and said, you're the last person on earth I would suspect of having heart trouble. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you walk all the time, and that's all true. And it doesn't change a thing. I have a disease. My dear mother gave it to me. You have a disease. Dear Adam gave it to you. You can say sin, not me. I go to church. I try not to hurt anyone. I'm better than most people. All true. Doesn't mean a thing. You can compare yourself favorably to other people. Some expert can tell you that you're just fine, but you're not. I'm not, I'm not either. We have a disease, the worst kind of heart disease, sin. But there is a healer. There is a savior who is ready to help us if we'll just admit our need. I don't know about you, but man, I'm, I admit my need. Sin has messed up my life in more ways than I know. I am so grateful to have someone changing me from the inside who knows what he's doing. And he'll do it for you too. Just face the fact you need help and ask for it. We started with this question hanging over our heads. Can God be trusted? And the answer is yes. He can be trusted. Trusted to tell us the truth. Trusted to respond to our cry. Trusted to accept us even when we've done wrong, been wrong, are wrong. We can trust him when we're not trustworthy. We can trust him when everything is going wrong and when it's our fault. We can trust him to do what he says and be who he is. That is, we can trust him to be like Jesus. We can trust him. But have we trusted him? Do we trust him now? I mentioned that Paul chose these particular Bible verses because they teach that the essence of sin is ignoring and rejecting God. And that sin has affected every part of us and every one of us. But I didn't mention this. The passages Paul chose, and I'm sure this was intentional, the ones about our failures and sins, 
they all come from Old Testament texts about how God rescues and restores weary sinners like us. That's what he does. That's who he is. You can trust him. Will you trust him? The way to trust him is to admit your need, your sin, and place yourself under his care. The way to trust him is to accept what he's done for you through Jesus and will do in you through his spirit. You can't hang back and still trust him. You have to go in for the complete cure. Will you trust him? If you're ready to trust him, you can pray a prayer like this. I'm going to give you an example. But only you can give yourself to God. Let's bow our heads. And if you're, you're at a place in your life where you've not done this, but you want to, I'm ready. Then you can pray something like this. Lord, I admit my need. I am a sinner. And I believe you have the cure. You are the cure. I take Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again, as my leader. And with your help, I'll follow his lead. Because of Jesus, I trust you to forgive me. And I ask you to change me into the person you always meant me to be.